asked me to lead a chapel service which would highlight the biblical counseling program here at the Master's College, I started thinking about how to do that. And I decided that what we would do to highlight that program today would be to, first of all, have some people who are involved in the program come and share their testimonies concerning their experience in the program and what it has meant to them. And then secondly, I want to do a little teaching on the features that drive and distinguish our biblical counseling program here at the Master's College. So first of all, we'll have the students come. Tim Cantrell is going to come and share his testimony, and then Carrie Ewing, and then Peter Bunnell will uh, close off the testimonies. These three, three students are involved in the program, and so at this time, Tim, if you'll come. Okay. Well, let's grab it. Well, um, I'm excited about the opportunity to... School's really not that big after all. <laughs> Bleachers are empty. Uh, it's all a joke. It's really a small campus. Um, I really wanted to let you know <laughs> just how, how Bible, biblical counseling has had an impact in my life. Um, I was really excited about the opportunity to tell you because it's one thing that I can sincerely tell you that's really had an impact on me. Um, I came out here from Texas with my main purpose in mind, yeah, go Texas, uh, to study the Word and to, to be trained in the Bible. I didn't feel like I was equipped enough, and I felt like the Lord is leading me into the ministry. So I came out here, biblical, uh, biblical studies major, uh, undeclared. And uh, just through some, it was neat to see the way the Lord brought things in my life through my friendship with Josh. And, um, and he, he's, a, he's pretty supportive of biblical counseling for the most part. And, and then through his family and just the way that, that the Lord uh, directed the details of my life, I really thought, well, you know, this is something I want to study because I really struggle with just learning things just for the sake of learning them and not thinking how I can apply them. Like, I love to come away going, man, God is, he's immutable, you know, but then I'm like, but how does that impact my life? Or, you know, how does, how can I apply that in my relationships? You know, I, I love to have a quiet time, but I don't want to go down the hall and, you know, mix it up with the guy and tell him, you know, and encourage him, you know. So I really felt like that was just a neat thing that I wanted to do. And and the second reason, and this is something I've been thinking about as, as you guys go through your schedules, I know you... You sit there and you think, man, what do I want to do? I'm, I'm about to be a junior now, and I can't piddle around with GE anymore. I need to get serious about what I'm taking, you know. And uh, you see people that are doing things right now that have nothing to do with what they studied in college. You know, someone majored in math, and right now they're, they're doing a, you know, business work or something. There's, you know, sometimes there's no link at all. And the exciting thing about biblical counseling is you can't escape it. You know, there's no way. I can't think of one thing that I'll be doing in the future that I'll, I'll say, you know, I wish I was using my major more. I mean, there's no way. With biblical counseling, it's my life. You know, every time I turn around, every time I sit down and do homework, not only do I have the joy of, of learning how that's going to impact others, but I have the joy of coming away saying, how can I apply this homework to my life? And it's, it's a real privilege, and I have to be careful when I go home not to rub it in too much with my friends that go to secular schools because, I mean, they'd give anything to, to do two hours of studying the Proverbs and how to, how to guard your tongue, you know, like Mark shared Friday or something like that. And so it's been real exciting just to study the Scriptures and know the joy of doing my homework for me and then realize that out of that, it's going to be an impact, and hopefully God will teach me how to, to apply that to people's lives. And So that's been an exciting thing. It's given me such a love for the Word and seeing how practical God's Word is. And I was going to read a psalm that I think expresses my heart's desire more and more, each, each, even each week as I sit under Dr. Mack and the teaching of biblical counseling, not just him, but most of all the Scriptures. Uh, David said, 
And I shall delight in thy commandments, which I love. And I shall lift up my hands to thy commandments, which I love. And I will meditate on thy statutes. Carrie's going to come Hi. Um, I came to the Master's College and I was a liberal studies major. And after being here for a year, I decided that it was too big of an opportunity to pass by and not um, study more Bible. And so I began to look at the different emphasis that I could have in the Bible area. And then remembering back to my high school years and how different people would come to me for advice and not feeling adequate or having any authority to tell them what to do, but always wanting to know. And so I entered the counseling classes with an idea of, oh, I'm going to learn some practical things on how to advise people and how to help people. And um, now that I'm in the classes, that's, I mean, that's a part of it. But what I've really learned is that true change only comes through the Word of God. And if I'm ever going to help anyone change, I've got to change myself. And it's just really caused me to examine my own life and really caused me to um, study the Word and be applying it so that others can see that in my life because there's no way that I can tell anyone this is what you should be doing if I'm not doing it myself. And the authority comes from the Word of God. It's not me speaking, telling these people guidelines that they need to live by. It's guidelines that God has set for us. And um, I would just really recommend that you at least take one intro class because it has been really life-changing for me and very challenging. Good morning. Um, this is a real privilege to be able to come up here and tell you about biblical counseling. Um, when I first started, I was youth in music, and... I started thinking about that. Well, is that really what I want to do? And I thought, well, no, I enjoy talking to people one-on-one -on -one and really focusing on that. And <clears throat> so I thought, well, I guess I'll go for biblical counseling. I'd never even heard of what biblical counseling was until I came to the Master's College. So it was, it was really a unique experience to be able to go in and, and learn how the Bible applies. You know, that's what you hear Tim and Carrie both saying. The Bible applies to people's life. And we don't tend to focus on that in a lot of our other classes. We, sent, we like to just sort of gloss over a lot of the information, you know, learn about the doctrine of God and then just take it and regurgitate it back on a test or something like that. And we don't want to apply it to our life. And maybe we do think about applying it once in a while, but then we don't really know how to apply it. And that's something that the counseling major goes through is how to apply it what steps to take, and all that kind of thing. And it's been really challenging in my life to, to try and apply those things. Um, one verse that I'd like to share is Colossians 3, verses 1 through 4. And it says, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on the things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Now that says to set your mind on the things above. Now most of you have probably read that, and hopefully most of you said, all right, I want to do that, and I'm going to do that. And then time has gone on, and I know this has been it, the experience in my life. You know, time goes on, and, 
and, you know, okay, I'm trying to set my mind on the things above and not worry about this and not worry about that and keep my mind clear and, and clean and focused on God. But we never really are successful with that, completely successful with that. And one thing that is big in biblical counseling, and those who have had the class will know this, is making lists. Making lists about how you're going to do something or... or um, what you're going to focus your mind on. And so that's something I've been challenged to do, to make the list of things that, that, um, that I can apply into my life. And that way it's always there. And I know exactly what I'm going to set my mind on. And that's just a step of taking, taking the Bible and actually applying it to your life instead of just saying, okay, yeah, I want to do that, and actually doing it and making steps to make sure it happens. So thank you very much, and here's Dr. Mack. Thank you, Tim and Carrie and Peter, for sharing. Uh, some time ago, I heard the story of a fellow who wanted to get into show business. But he had a problem because he couldn't act, nor could he sing. And yet he wanted to be in show business. So he didn't know what to do, but one day he was watching one of these variety programs on television when uh, they had some animal acts you know, on that variety program. You know, they had dogs jumping through hoops and doing flip-flops and climbing ladders and all of those kind of things. And he thought, well, if I can't sing and if I can't act, maybe I could develop an animal act and I could still get into show business. And then he started thinking about, well, what kind of an animal act will I develop? And he remembered that he had two mice at home. One of them was named uh, Minnie and the other was named Mickey. And he thought, well, what can I do to develop an animal act with the animals I already have, Mickey and Minnie? And he got the idea that he would teach Mickey to play a piano and he would teach Minnie to sing. And then they would uh, go into uh, show business. Well, he worked with Mickey for a while and finally Mickey really became quite an accomplished pianist, you know, a little piano with a little piano stool, and he'd sit Mickey down, and Mickey would work away at it, and he became an accomplished pianist. And then he began to work with Minnie, and he trained Minnie to sing, and finally, he had developed these two mice to the point where he thought that they were ready to go into show business. Well, he put Mickey in a little brown paper bag, and Minnie in a little brown paper bag, and the miniature piano and piano stool in that little brown paper bag, and he carried that little brown paper bag to a booking agent. He walked into this booking agent's office, and he told the booking agent what he wanted. And the booking agent said, well, tell me about your act. And he said, well, I'll do better than tell you about it. I'll show you. And so he pulled uh, Mickey out of the brown paper bag and Minnie out of the brown paper bag and the piano and the piano stool, and he set up uh, the whole situation. And then he said, okay, Mickey, now play. And Minnie, you uh, sing. And so Mickey uh, uh, used his little paws, and he just played beautiful music on that piano. And then Minnie, she reared back, and she just sang. And uh, after the booking agent saw this, this act, he said, this is terrific, this is great, I have never seen an act like this before, this is wonderful, we're really going to go right to the top with this act, and he said, uh, uh, get your name here on the dotted line, and he pulled out a contract for this guy to sign, and the guy said, oh, well, he said, oh, yeah, uh, I really can't sign this contract, because my conscience is 
really bothering me, and he said, uh, I, I, I can't really let you be my booking agent. And he put Mickey and Minnie back in the bag and the piano and the piano stool back in the bag, and he began to walk out. And while he was walking out, this booking agent came running after him, got down on his knees and began to beg and say, you got to let me be your booking agent. He said, no. He said, no, I can't let you do it. Well, said the guy as he continued to beg and pull on his coattail, he said, you got to at least tell me why you won't let me be your booking agent. The fellow said, well, the reason is, he said, I'm really uh, smitten in my conscience. He said, I lied to you about my act. And the booking agent said, what do you mean you lied? I mean, I heard music coming out of that piano. I heard many uh, singing. And the guy said, no, I can't let you be my booking agent because I lied to you. Well, he said, at least tell me how you lied to me. He said, well, I lied to you in this way. You see, Minnie can't sing a note. Mickey is a ventriloquist. Now you say, what in the world does that have to do with biblical counseling? Well, my friends, you see, that man didn't realize the tremendous resources that he had in that little mouse. And there are many of us who don't realize the tremendous resources we have in the Christian faith. In 2 Peter 1, 3, and 4, the Bible says that in our union with Jesus Christ, we have everything that we need for living and for godliness. In Romans chapter 8, verses 35 through 37, the Apostle Paul describes a lot of horrible situations, pressures that come upon us, stresses we experience. He talks about abuse. He talks about mistreatment. And then he says, in the face of all of that abuse and in the face of all of that mistreatment, in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. He's saying we have the resources to respond to abuses, to mistreatment, to pressures of incredible sorts, and overwhelmingly conquer. In 2 Corinthians 9 and verse 8, the Bible says, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that you having all sufficiency may abound unto every good work. And in 2 Corinthians 10, verses 4 and 5, the Bible says, that the weapons of our warfare are not fleshly. They're not merely human. They are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thought that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Now, the Bible makes it clear that we have tremendous resources in the Christian life for living right here and now, not just for getting to heaven. The Bible says at least two things about these resources that we have in our union with Christ. One is it makes it clear that in our union with Christ, we have resources that are sufficient to handle any situation or circumstance that we encounter. The Scripture says in our union with Christ, we have everything, not just some of the things, but everything we need for living and for godliness. We don't need anything else to live and to be godly than what we have in our union with Christ. In 2 Corinthians 9, Paul, he, 
heaps superlative upon superlative. He says, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that you having all sufficiency may abound unto every good work. And so the Bible makes it clear that we don't need something other than the resources that we have in Jesus Christ to live successfully and effectively in this world. We have everything we need. But the Bible not only makes it clear that the resources that we have are sufficient, it makes it clear that these resources are superior to anything that the world has to offer. The world cannot hold a candle to the resources that we have in Jesus Christ. The Bible says our weapons are not carnal. They are not merely human weapons. They are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. We have divine resources, and that makes the resources we have in Christ superior to any other resources. Now, I could spend a lot of time, which I don't have, talking about the various sufficient and superior resources that we have in the Christian life. But this morning, I want to just briefly focus on one of these sufficient and superior resources that we have for living in this world as well as for getting to heaven. We can look at a lot of passages in the Old Testament which describe this resource or a lot of passages in the New Testament. But I want us to focus on just one passage, a passage you probably know, but I want us to draw some things out of this and then relate it to our biblical counseling program. The passage I'm talking about is 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 17, where the Apostle Paul says to his young faith in the t son in the faith, You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings, the holy scriptures, which were able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now here the Apostle Paul tells us about one of the incredible resources we have in our union with Christ, which is both sufficient and superior. He talks about the Scriptures. And I want us to notice the sufficiency and the superiority of this resource by asking and answering three questions from this passage. First of all, what does this passage say that the Bible can do? Secondly, why does this passage say the Bible is able to do these things? And thirdly, how does God use the Bible in actually making these things a reality in our lives. Now, what does this passage say that the Bible is able to do which indicates its sufficiency and also its superiority? Well, in verse 15, he says that the Scriptures are the sacred writings. They are the holy Scriptures. And the word holy or sacred here means that they are unique. It means they are in a class all by themselves. It means there is not another writing, there is not another book, there is not another treatise that is like this particular writing. It is in a class all by itself. It is the sacred writings. In the Old Testament, some of the vessels that were found in the temple were called holy vessels. 
They were holy vessels because they were set apart for divine service. They were different from every other vessel because they were devoted and dedicated to God. So it is with the Scriptures. This is the Holy Scripture. Secondly, we see in these verses that uh, this particular uh, uh, book is able to make us wise unto salvation. This is what the Bible can do. It can make us wise. And in particular, it can make us wise unto salvation. Now, in the Bible, the word salvation is used in at least two ways. First of all, it's sometimes used in a very narrow sense in reference to what we could call justification, being declared righteous on the basis of the person and work of Jesus Christ. We who are sinners are now, because of Jesus, His life, His work on the cross, as well as the way He lived, all that is imputed to us. It's put to our account. And God now declares us to be righteous. Our sins are forgiven. And the very righteousness of Christ is imputed to us so that in a forensic or legal sense, we stand before God, not simply innocent, but declared righteous. Now, that's one of the things that he's saying here. And he's saying that this most important of all things, coming into a right relationship with God, is accomplished through the Scripture. It makes us wise unto salvation. But the second way in which the word salvation is used in the Bible is the word salvation is used in a much broader sense than that. In some passages of the Scripture, the word salvation is used to describe everything that God wants to do for us in Jesus Christ, including our justification, our sanctification, and even our glorification. He wants to, according to Romans 8, verse 29, make us like Jesus. He has predestinated us that we might become conformed to the image of His Son. In salvation, God is not just up to keeping us out of hell. God has a much more positive thing in mind. He wants to make us completely like Jesus. And in a very real sense, all of the problems that we have in living, we have as a result of the fact that we're not like Jesus. In a very simple way, we can say every problem we have is because we are not like Jesus. If we were like Jesus, we wouldn't get depressed the way we get depressed sometimes. If we were like Jesus, we wouldn't be inordinately anxious. If we were like Jesus, we wouldn't have sexual problems that we sometimes have. And so in salvation, God is up to making us like His Son. He wants to make us complete. In fact, that's what the word salvation really means. It comes from the Greek word soter which means to be made complete, to be made whole. You see, right now, all of us are to some extent abnormal. We talk about abnormal psychology. Well, Ecclesiastes 9 and verse 3 says that insanity is in all of our hearts. It's not just some weirdos who are insane. According to the Bible, folks, I've got news for you. Ecclesiastes 9 and verse 3 says that all of us are to some extent insane. Because whenever we interpret life, view life, or live life in any other way than the way that God views it, interprets it, and wants us to live it, we are insane. It's insane to live life and to think we know more than God, that we understand more than God, that we can interpret things better than God. That's insanity. And in salvation, God wants to bring us to the place where we see life as He sees it. We interpret life as He sees it. We view life and we live life as He wants us to live it. And how is that accomplished? It's accomplished through the Word of God. God uses His Word to make us wise unto salvation, to make us complete, 
to make us like the Lord Jesus Christ. But there's something else that the Bible uh, says it can do. And that's found in verse 17. It says that the man of God may be adequate. Through His Word, God makes us adequate. Now I want you to know that we don't need to be more than adequate. If you're adequate, it means you have everything you need. The King James translates this word that the man of God may be perfect, mature, complete, lacking in nothing. You feel inadequate? You know, Alfred Adler said that the basic problem with people is that they feel inadequate. And he was the guy who talked a lot about the inferiority complex. And he said man's basic problem is that he wants to overcome his inferiority complex. And he described a number of ways in which men try to do that. Well, I disagree with Alfred Adler uh, that the basic problem of people is an inferiority complex. I believe it goes much deeper than that. The basic problem is that I'm a sinner. My heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, and I'm not completely like Jesus. But I do agree with him that most people, many people, want to overcome their sense of inadequacy. They want to be adequate. Well, how do you become adequate? You don't become adequate through the writings of Freud or Skinner or Adler or Frankel or Rogers or Maslow. You become adequate. God says He uses His Word to make you adequate and to thoroughly equip you for every good work. The resources we have in the Word of God for understanding our problems and solving our problems are both sufficient and they are superior to anything that the world has to offer. This is what the Bible can do. Now, the second question that we want to consider is the question, why is the Bible able to do these things? Well, the first reason, as I mentioned a little bit ago, is found in verse 15 in that this is the sacred writings. It's unique. It's different from every other book. The second reason is found in also in verse 15 in that we're told that the sacred writings are able. Now, the word translated able is the Greek word dunamena, from which we get our English word dynamite. It's a word which speaks of power. This book is powerful. It has an incredible amount of power. It is quick. It is living. It is powerful, says Hebrews 4 and verse 12. How powerful is it? Well, Romans 1.16 says, The gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. How powerful is it? Well, the Bible makes it clear in Acts, the 20th chapter, in verse 32, where Paul says, I commend you to God and to the Word of His grace, which is able, that's our word, it's powerful to build you up and to give you an inheritance among the saints in light. This book can transform your life. It can change you. This book is powerful to make you adequate. Third reason that the Bible can do what it claims that it can do is found in verse 16 where we read, All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable. The word translated profitable would be better translated useful. This book is useful. Now, there are some people who think the Bible is useless. I was involved in a graduate studies program in secular psychology. And all throughout that program either overtly or covertly, I was being told that the Bible is useless. 
I was being told by my professors more than that. I was being told that the Bible is dangerous. I had a professor stand before us and he told me that any counselor who tries to tell people what they should do or what they should not do, what is right or what is wrong, is immoral. And he went on to say it should be declared as illegal. And if you do it, you ought to be put in jail. And we went through a process of what they called systematic desensitization, where they tried to desensitize us to all traditional values. And primarily when they referred to traditional values, they were referring to the values of the Word of God. They believed the Bible was useless and even dangerous. Well, this text says the Bible is useful. It has practical benefit. The life that this book can produce in you is superior to anything that the world will ever experience. It claims it can do because, according to verse 16, it is inspired by God. Now, the Greek word translated inspired by God really is God-breathed. Theopneustia. You know, when we talk about inspiration, a lot of times we say, well, I was really inspired by a particular song or I was inspired by a particular message. And we mean that somehow something was breathed into me so that I got excited, I got enthused about it. Now, that's not what the Bible means when it uses the word inspiration. It's not that somebody breathed something into God. It's not even that the biblical writers were inspired. You know, we say that somebody who wrote a great piece of music, he was inspired. We say that somebody who wrote a beautiful poem, she was inspired. Now, that's not what the Bible's talking about. It isn't the person who was inspired. It's what was produced that's inspired. This book is God-breathed. And I want to tell you that if God Himself were to appear today and He would allow you to see Him in visible form, perhaps as a theophany in the person of Jesus, if He were to appear and if He were to speak audibly and directly to you, what He would say, if He were visibly present, would not be any more authentic or any more the Word of God than what we have in this book. This book is God-breathed. And that's what makes it different from every other book. I remember hearing the story about a guy who went to one of these antique places and he walked around and he saw a painting on the wall. He liked that painting on the wall. It was dingy and it was dirty. And he decided that uh, he would uh, buy it. And so he bought it for $35. He took it home. He cleaned it up. He cleaned off the, the surroundings, the piece of uh, wood that surrounded it. And he tried to clean up the painting and he hung it on his wall. He liked it. One day, a friend of his who was something of a connoisseur of art came in and he walked up to that painting and he looked at it and he said, Man, he said, do you know what you have there? And the guy said, Yeah, it's a painting I bought down here at this uh, antique shop. No, he said, I believe you have a painting that is painted by the famous Spanish painter El Greco. He said, You really think so? Yeah, I think so. But just to make sure, let's get somebody who really knows art to look at it. So they took it to a real expert in the area of art. He looked at it and he said, yeah, what you have there is a painting by El Greco. That man bought that painting one day for $35. He sold it a few days later for $35,000. Now, what changed the value of the painting? 
You see, uh, the frame around the painting didn't change. Uh, it wasn't uh, the painting itself that changed. It wasn't the canvas that changed. It was the fact that somebody recognized who the author was. Now, my friends, we ought to realize who the author of this book is. It's Almighty God. And that makes the value of this book infinitely more than the value of any of the writings of any of the great philosophers or psychologists of the world. The Bible is able to make us wise unto salvation and to make us adequate because it is inspired by God. That brings us to our third question, namely, how does it make us wise unto salvation? And that's described for us in verse 16. How does God accomplish this thing of making us wise unto salvation and, and making us adequate? Well, He does it in four ways. First of all, He does it by teaching us. We need a standard. The Bible says, You do err not knowing the Scriptures nor the power of God. And many people have the problems that they have because they are ignorant. They don't understand. And they need somebody to teach them what life is all about, who man is and why he has his problems and what to do about it. And there are a lot of people out there who are trying to tell us what the problems of people are. Freud did, Skinner did, Rogers did, Maslow did. All of them were theologians. Every counselor is a theologian. He has his perspective on who man is and what man is and why he has his problems and what to do about it. He has his beliefs and his convictions, and they are just as much faith convictions as ours are. In fact, they're more so, because we have more evidence that ours are true because they come from a book which was given to us by God. Everybody's teaching us about man. Well, how do we know really who man is, what his problems are, what life is all about, what the solutions to our problems are? We need to be taught. And God has given us a book to teach us and it teaches us infallibly. Secondly, God accomplishes this thing of making us wise unto salvation and adequate by reproving us. By reproving us. A lot of times people don't want to be reproved. But if you want to improve, you need to be reproved. Now the word translated reprove means to not simply that you're shown what is wrong. The word translated reprove means to be convinced. It means to be persuaded. It means to be convicted. It's the same word which is found in John 16, 7 through 9, where we read that the Spirit of God, when He has come, He will not only convict the world, He will convince the world of sin, of righteousness, and judgment. And if you're a believer today, you're a believer because the Holy Spirit convicted you, convinced you, persuaded you that you were lost, undone, that you were a sinner under the wrath of God, and that you needed to be saved. There was a sense of guilt. There was a sense of conviction that came upon you. And people change not simply because they're taught. It's not enough to teach somebody. People change because they are convicted or convinced. And the instrument that God uses to convince us that we're wrong and that we need a change is His Word. He uses conviction of the Scriptures. Thirdly, to make us wise unto salvation and adequate, He not only teaches us, that's not enough. He not only reproves us, that's not enough. He also corrects us. See, we don't simply need to be showing you're wrong, you're bad, you're blowing it. 
We need help in knowing how to make it right. And that's what the Bible does. The Bible not only shows us our sin, how we're failing, the Bible shows us what we must do to make it right. The Greek word which is found here pictures somebody walking along in one direction and then all of a sudden he does it about face and he heads in the other direction. And that's what God does. He corrects us. He's very practical. You know, to Jeremiah, God says, I have torn down and I have planted. God doesn't just do a negative work. It's easy for us to find fault with people. But what we need is somebody who will help us how to, know, how to make the wrongs right. And that's what God does through the Bible. Now, teaching us, reproving us, and correcting us still doesn't get the job done. Still doesn't make us wise into salvation. It still doesn't make us adequate. We also need to be trained. Now, training is doing the right thing over and over and over and over again until it becomes a habit. The purpose of training is to make that which is unnatural natural. It is to make that which is difficult easy. And through the Scriptures, as we train, and training is something, as I say, you do over and over again. God doesn't usually zap you and all of a sudden your problems are gone. Change comes as a result of training. 1 Timothy 4, 7 says, we must train ourselves for the purpose of godliness. You'll never become godly unless you go into training. Hebrews 5.14 says our faculties are trained by reason of practice. How do you learn to do the right thing? How do you make the right thing a habit with you? How do you become adequate? How do you become wise unto salvation in the broadest sense? You do that by training. Now, when I was in college, I played football at Wheaton College. And every summer, we went to Wisconsin, to Green Bay, and there was a... Um, there was a camp there that we used every summer, and we called that training camp. You know what we did in training camp? It was horrible. It was terrible. I mean, you, you sweated and perspired and got aches and pains all over you. But what we did is in the morning, we would go out and we would run, do a lot of calisthenics, and every day we'd do the same calisthenics primarily. And then we'd run around that field, we'd run around, and we'd do wind sprints. And then we'd hit the, the, the blocking sled and we'd knock that blocking sled around and, and then we would use the tackling dummy and we'd tackle that dummy until you wondered who was the dummy. I mean, over and over. we just do that every day. And then we'd run through certain plays and we'd go through the same play again and again and then the coach would say, wait a minute, guys. He said, you did it wrong. Wayne, when you led interference there. You didn't do it right. Here's what you're supposed to do. Let's do it again. So we came back and we ran it again. And that's what we did for several weeks when we were at training camp. And then we went back to the campus and we did it all over again in preparation for the game. Now that's training. What's the purpose of all? Did he just want to uh, give us aches and pains in our muscles? Did he want us just to sweat and all that? No, no. We did it over and over again with the intention that if we practice it enough, eventually we'd do it habitually. We'd do it second nature. Now that's how change is accomplished in the Christian life as well. It's by way of training. And the instrument that God uses in training us is the Word of God. All young people, in the Word of God, we have a sufficient and a superior resource. It can make us wise unto salvation. It can make us adequate. And maybe you're here by this time and you're saying, well, wait a minute now. 
You say that's what the Bible's able to do. Look, I know a lot of people who claim to be Christians, and they're not much like Jesus. And they don't seem to be very adequate, and they don't feel very adequate. If the Bible's able to do that, why in the world do we have so many problems among Christians? Well, let me give you three reasons. First of all, this is happening because there are a lot of people who are not really using the Bible at all. And it's incredible to me how many families don't even have family devotions. Where mom and dad are sitting down and studying the Word together. They claim to believe the Bible, but they don't use it. There are a lot of Christians who go days and even weeks and they don't really regularly train. You've got to regularly train. Stay in the book. That's how God changes you. So a lot of people aren't changing because they're not using the book. A second reason is because there are a lot of people who are using the Bible improperly. You don't get any real value out of this book unless you use it the way God wanted you to use it. And God wanted you to use it to be taught, to be reproved, to be corrected, and to be trained. And that means you come to the Word of God for practical reasons, not just to cram your head full of facts as to who did this and who did that and when they did it and all that, but you come saying, Lord, I want you to teach me today what's right and what's wrong, what I should believe and what I shouldn't believe. Lord, I want you to reprove me. I want you to convict me because there's a lot of sin in my life and some of it I don't even know about. And Lord, I want you to correct me. Show me how to make it right. And Lord, I want you to train me. You've got to use the book in the way God wants you to use it. And maybe that needs you need, means you need help in knowing how to do that. But the third reason that many people aren't really changing is because they don't believe this book is either sufficient or superior. They just don't believe that this book can do what God says it can do. And so they want to add a little bit of Freud, and they want to add a little bit of uh, Skinner, and they want to add a little bit of uh, the other uh, psychologists, many of multitudes. They want to have a toss salad where you throw a little bit of Bible in and a little bit of other things because they don't believe that this book is sufficient and they don't believe this book is superior. Well, I want to tell you, my friends, that whenever you add anything to the Bible, you always come out with less. In mathematics, when you add two and two, you always come out with four. But when you add anything to the Bible, you always come out with less than the Bible. You always come out with less than that which is sufficient and less than that which is superior. And notice in verse 15, Paul says this book, is able to make you wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. It's only as you believe, really trust that God is going to use this book to do what He says He will use it to do, that it will accomplish that which God wants it to accomplish. Now, maybe by this time you're saying, what in the world does all this have to do with biblical counseling? I thought you were going to highlight the biblical counseling program here at Master's College. Well, what all this has to do with biblical counseling is simply this. We at the Master's College are convinced that what should drive and distinguish our program is the sufficiency and the superiority of Scripture. We believe that God's explanation of who and what man is in His Word is better than anybody else's explanation. We believe that God's interpretation of why man has the problems he has is superior. We believe that God's interpretation of 
what we should do about those problems and how we should solve those problems is sufficient and superior. And we believe that God will do this as we trust Him and as we use His Word. Some time ago, I had a Christian lady from the Netherlands who came to interview me. She was going around to different, quote, Christian counseling centers in the United States deciding what kind of Christian counseling they wanted to begin to use in the Netherlands. Up till that time, they'd had very little in that realm. And she sat in my office that day, and she said to me, well, will you tell me about the kind of counseling you do? And I said to her, well, you know, we're Christians. We're committed to a biblical approach. And basically, I explained to her some of the things that I've explained to you. And she looked across the desk at me, and she said, you know, Dr. Mack, that's all very interesting. But tell me, what do you do when people have really serious problems? Now, she was a professing believer. But she looks at me, and in effect what she was saying is the Bible can handle the small problems, the minute problems that you have. But when people have really serious problems, surely you don't think that the Bible is sufficient. Yes, I do. I not only believe it's sufficient, I believe it's superior to anything that the world has to offer. If the Bible is true, if 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 17 is true, then I can't understand why Christians wouldn't be excited about basing their understanding of man, his problems, and how to solve them on the Scriptures rather than the insights of finite and fallen men. Friends, God has said that through His Word He can make us wise unto salvation he can make us adequate. May God help us to believe the Bible, to study the Bible, and to use the Bible in the way that He wants us to use it, both personally and ministerially. Let's pray. Let's stand as we pray together. Father, we come to You in Jesus' name to thank You for loving us and caring for us, for sending Your Son to be the living Word. And then we thank You also for giving us the written Word which tells us about the living Word. And we pray, Lord, that You would help us to search the Scriptures to make sure that our thoughts about life, understanding of how to help people, is really based upon the sufficient and superior Word of God. Thank You for these students. Thank You that they're here. And we just pray, Lord, that you would equip them thoroughly unto every good work so that your name might be highly exalted and that people might get the help that is mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.